Welcome to Bug Banter with the Xerces Society, where we explore the world of invertebrates and discover how to help these extraordinary animals. If you want to support our work, go to xerces.org donate. Hi, I'm Rachel in Missoula, Montana. And I'm Matthew in Portland, Oregon. No bee is as popular as the honeybee. When we think of a bee, many of us think of this charismatic social bee that lives in large colonies, does the wiggle dance, produces the honey we love, and pollinates many of our crops. Although honeybees can be found all over North America, they only arrived in the 17th century by way of European settlers. Aside from honeybees in North America, thousands of native bees can be found on the landscape. Now, we've all heard that bees are in decline, but as a non-native species, are honeybees the answer to helping us save the bees? How do honeybees interact with our native bees on the landscape? Joining us to help answer these questions is Rich Hatfield. Rich is the Xerces Senior Endangered Species Conservation Biologist and Bumblebee Conservation Lead and manages all aspects of the Xerces Society's work on bumblebees. This includes community science projects, as well as understanding the threats to bumblebees and actions we can take to protect them. Rich has studied the factors that impact bumblebees, including the presence of honeybees in our landscapes. Welcome, Rich. We're happy to have you today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's jump straight in, shall we, Rich? Um, many people are surprised to learn that the honeybees are not native to the U.S. Can you tell us why they were originally brought here? Uh, I can't tell you why they were brought here, but I can speculate <laughs> and speculate potentially with some some evidence. Um, I mean, if you if you think about all the way back to the 1600s, it's obviously pre-electricity and and pre a lot of global trade and a lot of other things that we have now and. And honeybees, as we all know, produce a number of products. I think normally we think of them as providing honey as being sort of the main source of um, product that we would get from, from honeybees. And so that was certainly important. People, you know, sugar was not an option back then. There was not a global sugar trade, at least that I'm aware of. And so honey was a major sweetener that was used for probably all kinds of things. It's also very likely that people were making mead from that honey so that they could have an alcoholic beverage. It was one of the first alcoholic beverages and goes back, as you as you all know, thousands of years. So likely mead was an important product that we were consuming. Um, being on a boat for a long time and then being on a new continent was probably came with its struggles. And humans, as we all know, like to self-medicate. So I'm sure that was part of it. Um, and then in addition to, to honey and, and the mead that would come from that honey, wax products were also probably quite important. Um, you know, there, there wasn't electricity, so we didn't have lights. So people were taking that wax and, um, and likely making candles and other products from that wax um, as well to make their lives you know, easier and better. Um, so that's why we believe they were brought here. And, you know, there's some evidence of a fairly robust honey and and mostly wax trade that was happening in those first couple hundred years. Um, so like sort of the mid 1600s to the mid 1800s, there's evidence of a fairly robust, like if you look back at trade logs, you know, there's a fair bit of wax that, that changed hands back in those days. It was a valuable resource. Yeah, no, and I remember reading once that um, at some point in the medieval era wax was potentially more valuable than gold and that some people got paid in wax as part of their annual payment so 
It's pretty. We just don't think of that being such a um, such an important resource. So, but great, thanks. Yeah, no, but but certainly back then it, it would have been literally the light, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so we often use terms native and non-native, and I think it's important to define what that means in our context of what we're referring to when we talk about honeybees. Can you explain what the difference is between a native and non-native species? I can try. I can certainly give you what my thought is. That doesn't mean that everyone's necessarily going to agree with with my thought on this because humans, frankly, have been moving animals and plants around this planet for a really, really long time. (laughs) Um, But as a conservation biologist, I sort of think of native plants and animals as those that were here without the assistance of humans. Humans didn't move them here. So honeybees as we know them, at least for the most part, I think we're talking about the Western honeybee, Apis mellifera. Um, That species was not on this continent until European settlers brought it here, which makes it an introduced non-native species as of the 1600s. We could argue about whether it's become naturalized since then or, or what role that has in our current ecosystem, but I don't think there's any person that would argue that humans brought the Western honeybee to North America. They're introduced here. So they're a non-native species. And that's how I would define them, at least as it pertains to this conversation. Yeah. And another thing that we often read or hear in the media is that honeybees are threatened or endangered. Is is that true? I think it depends on how we use those terms, threatened and endangered. I think there's no there's no question that honeybees are struggling, right? Mm -hmm. If we look at the health of the honeybee industry, and if we look at how honeybee keepers think about their industry and their hives, I think there's a lot of people that would tell you that honeybees are struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they're certainly not as healthy as they used to be. I think you can talk to honeybee keepers who used to say it was very regular for a hive to live for five, seven years without much indication. And I think at least my understanding is that that's not true anymore, that, you know, you're lucky to get a couple of years out of a hive. But when I think of, again, as a conservation biologist, when I think about something being threatened or endangered, that means we're starting to think about extinction and and whether that animal could potentially disappear from the planet forever, right? Extinction is forever. And in that regard, honeybees are not threatened and they are not endangered. In fact, there are probably more honeybees on the planet now than there have ever been um, mm-hmm. because they're, they have they still are, are thriving or at least they're existing throughout all of their historic range, which is Africa and most of most of Europe into Western Asia. Um, and then, you know, they're also propagated by agriculture, I believe, on every continent on the planet, except for Antarctica, where there probably have been honeybees, but probably are not honeybees all the time. Um, and so, you know, there are literally millions of hives all over the world, probably tens of millions and potentially even hundreds of millions. I don't have the, the statistics in front of me. But from that perspective, you know, honeybees are in a situation right now where they're still fairly resilient. They're not going to go through, at least in what I can see as the near future, although <laughs> the, the, the future gets scary when we start thinking too much about it. But 
I don't anticipate a population crash in that species that would lead to an extinction event. So I would not define them as threatened or endangered. There are some bees that you would define in that way? Yes. Yes, there are. I mean, but unfortunately, we don't have as good of data on insects as I wish we did. Like when we look at mammals and birds, I think we have fairly good population numbers that we can track through time and look at trends. We don't have those same data with insects with, with most bees. But, but with bumblebees, we do have a fairly robust data set that goes back to the 1800s. And we can look at how common species used to be versus how common or rare they are now. And the indication we have from the data we have suggests that around a quarter of our bumblebees are significantly more rare now than they used to be. And a few of those are, you know, potentially on the brink of, of extinction. The rusty patch bumblebee, which lives roughly or once upon a time used to live roughly from North Dakota to Maine down to Georgia, you know, used to be one of the top probably five most common bumblebees in, in Eastern North America. And it, it's, it's gone through a around a nine, let's just say a 90% population decline. It's disappeared from 90% of its historic range and where we find it, it's much less common than it used to be. Here in the Western United States, the Western bumblebee Bombus occidentalis has gone through a, a similar um, decline, maybe not quite as steep, but it's disappeared from a significant portion of its range and where we find it it's not as common as it used to be. And then probably the most extreme example, at least that, that I'm aware of, is a bumblebee called Franklin's bumblebee, which historically lived in a pretty small range from Southern Oregon down to Northern California, roughly from Mount Ashland to Mount Shasta, if you're familiar with this part of the, the world. And that species, Bombus Franklini, hasn't been seen since 2006. Um, both Franklin's bumblebee and the rusty patch bumblebee are, are federally listed. So they're actually listed as endangered species under the Endangered Species Act. They have federal protection. So there's been significant effort to look for and to try to protect both of those species. That effort has led to a fair bit of additional fines of populations for the rusty patch bumblebee. So we now, we didn't used to see it at all in Western West Virginia and Virginia and, and populations have popped up there with the increased effort looking for that, which is, which is good. It's still rare. It's still in decline, but, but you know, the, the endangered species act is working and that it's finding new populations so that we can help them recover those efforts, at least as, as of yet have not turned up any Franklin's bumblebees. So that bumblebee has still not been detected there are some people that would tell you that it may potentially be extinct. I still have hope that, you know, our increased efforts to find it in a really remote and wild area of the country will be successful and that we'll be able to find that needle in a haystack and help that species recover. But um, it's exceedingly rare. And yeah, I mean, even if we do find it, a single event could wipe out the remaining populations, right? So that's that's how we have to think about these things. And yeah, and and that's just bumblebees. There are, I'm sure, there are other bee species that have rare restricted ranges or that have gone through some disease event that that leads to yeah, true threat of extinction. Um, we just have the best data, or at least I'm most aware of the data <laughs> on bumblebees because that's where my my taxonomic focus is. 
Well, Rich, I'm glad we're going to have you back in March to do another podcast specific to bumblebees because I have like a hundred questions that I want to ask you. <laughs> um, but since we're focusing on on honeybees today, thank you for kind of giving us that paralleled picture of how our native bees are doing versus these these introduced um, honeybees. So. Despite the fact that they are an introduced species, you've already kind of hinted to the helpfulness and the usefulness of the honeybee. And that's, you know, probably why they were originally brought um, to the U.S. So in terms of today, what is their role in the U.S.? Because they do have an important role here um, in terms of crop pollination. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there, Rachel. It's a good good question. There's a lot to, that we can talk about. Um, you know, when we originally talk about why honeybees were brought here, it was for wax and for honey. We didn't talk about pollination services at all. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't really until quite a bit later, probably the, the late 1800s. I think it was actually may have been the early 1900s. I, I, I don't have a my my facts straight here, but it wasn't really until we we sort of invented ways to to move honeybees around easily in boxes and have removable sort of hive drawers that we that we started moving honeybees around fairly regularly and then started to understand in much more detail how important they are to pollination services. I think that we've known that insects are important for pollination probably since the 1700s or something like that. It's been studied and looked at. Um, but I don't think we necessarily tried to take advantage of honeybees for that until, until much later, until keeping honeybees and moving them around became much more easy. But, but since then, since, since the 1800s or 1900s and, and the agricultural and population boom that's happened throughout our country, honeybees have been a part of that story for a very long time. And a lot of our agricultural systems are built around honeybee pollination services for the most part. Um, a lot of farmers depend on, you know, renting or, or buying or having their own honeybees such that their crops can get pollinated. So especially for a crop like almonds, um, which happens throughout much of California, in a fairly early part of the year when most of our native bees aren't even flying yet, there's no real way to get that crop pollinated unless we bring honeybees into the state of California. So we or the, the agriculture and the almond industry literally brings almost every, I shouldn't say almost every, but brings a lot of commercial honeybees from all over the country, as far away as New England, all the way to California, you know, just for the purposes of pollinating those almonds. So for a couple of weeks, you know, in February, they're, they're in California doing that pollination service. And that industry probably wouldn't exist without honeybees. Um, and then they slowly make their way back. They go through the Midwest and probably participate in, in apple pollination and hit other sources on their way back, back home where they would overwinter. Um, but I think it's important to just step back, if I may, and just say, like, while, while our current agricultural system is dependent on honeybees, I don't think it needs to be that way, right? I mean, I think we could create a system that was different. If we thought about our farming from a true sustainable perspective, there are ways to, to grow crops such that there's enough native habitat nearby that we can have our native bees do a vast majority of the pollination services. There's plenty of studies out there that show that for a lot of crops, that if we did a better job of maintaining habitat on the landscape, that we could have native bees doing that pollination for free. And in some cases, even increase the yield 
coming from those farm fields, even if some of it's taken out of production to, to increase habitat for bees. So, so again, there's a lot here that we could talk about, <laughs> but yes, honeybees are very important for our current agricultural system. Um, I think we need to do a better job of, of maintaining those agricultural landscapes to make them healthier for honeybees such that that whole industry can be healthier. There's a lot of pesticides in modern agriculture. That's not good for honeybees. It's not good for, for native bees. And so um, I think we need to, to think long and hard about the kind of agricultural systems we're creating and the insects that's necessary for them and how we create a, a better long-term solution to that. I don't, I don't pretend to have the answers. I'm, I'm, I don't work directly in farming. I, I talk to a lot of farmers, but, but I think it's a question we should at least, it should be on the table. We should be having the conversation as often as we possibly can, which is why I try to weave it into this conversation or to the question that you, the, that you asked. Based on what you've said, honeybees are livestock essentially. So what would their role be in a natural area, like a natural park or public land in a place where they're not, their purpose isn't to pollinate our food or our crops? This also leads into the, the next thought that I had, which is, you know, there are thousands of species of bees native to North America. And most places you'll find dozens, you know, in your garden, maybe hundreds in a in a natural area, different species. And some people think that we'll be okay if we just keep the honeybee, you know, like the honeybee can do everything. But it seems like natural areas, for example, are an area where we really need all of that diversity of, of bees. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the short answer is that our, our natural areas here in in North America don't need honeybees. Mm -hmm. They they for the most part, you know, that's where our native bees, that's the last refuge for them that aren't sprayed with insecticides, that still have native flowers, that still have the habitat that they need. Like that's the last refuge for them. So we we should probably be trying to keep honeybees out. And we can talk more about why that is like what what potential threats that honeybees have to native bees and then so so that's why i think honeybees don't belong in that native areas because they are natural areas because that's where our native bees need to be that's their last refuge for them the question of whether um natural areas or, or why why natural areas maybe aren't so compatible with with honeybees is is a bit different but the main reason there is that honeybees are sort of I mean, there's 10,000 to 50,000 animals that are living in a hive, right? And they're trying mm -hmm. to support each other. They're collecting pollen and nectar, not for us. They're collecting it for themselves, right? So they're trying to get as much as they possibly can to help their populations grow, to reproduce, and to have food to eat during the wintertime. I think a lot of people don't know that. That's why honeybees make honey. It's so they actually have food to eat during the wintertime when there's no flowers blooming, our native bees all have a different strategy. They all hibernate. They sleep through the winter, so they don't need honey. So that's that's what honeybees are trying to do is make as much honey as they possibly can, have as much pollen on board as they can as a reserve in case things go wrong or it gets cold or, for, or, or they need to eat when there aren't flowers available. So because of that, honeybees are really good at, at exploiting really abundant resources. Like, so think about a crop field. You've got a a field that's full of flowers that are exactly the same. It's like a, 
it's a perfect system for a honeybee. They can learn how to extract as much pollen and nectar from that one flower and then repeat it literally millions of times as a hive. Like that is the system that honeybees thrive on. They can become really efficient, do it quickly. They can tell each other where the flowers are and go back and forth as many times as they possibly can. And voila, you've got a healthy, you know, 50,000 worker system that's like thriving. A natural area is a very different landscape than a farm field. There are ideally hundreds of different flowers out there. Those flowers are in lots of different sizes and shapes. Some of those shapes are so small that a honeybee can't even land on it, right? If it does, it's going to fall on the ground because the, the stalk of the flower can't hold it up. But a lot of our native bees are, are tiny. They're ant-sized, right? And so they can easily go into those little flowers. And um, and even, you know, bumblebees are obviously using similar flowers to, to honeybees. And, and when there are 10,000 to 50,000 honeybees flying around a natural area, visiting all the flowers, it changes which flowers our native bees are going to. And that alters pollination networks and changes which flowers are successful. And it changes how hard native bees um, have to work to get their food, which ultimately, if you increase the cost of getting food, right, your, your reproductive rates are going to go down. It, it changes that over time. So this hasn't been the most straightforward or coherent answer to your questions. I've thrown a lot of things sort of back at you, but I think you get to understand the gist of where I'm getting at is that honeybees really don't have a role in natural areas. They're not needed for the pollination services. And in fact, their presence can be disruptive to both the plant populations and the native animal, native bee populations that, that exist there. Great. You gave us a really broad picture of, of what what's happening out there which normally we we're just not aware of but i think aside from in natural areas like matthew had brought up you know if we go in our backyard and we see you know a lot of different types of bees including both native and the and the honeybee um do they compete in in urban habitats as well not just in natural areas yes there's no question i mean like if you if you look at any sort of book or scientific paper or sort of anecdote that looks at bee decline, habitat loss is a major one. People are talking about lack of flowers on the landscape. If, if, if there aren't enough flowers on the landscape to feed bees, which I think we all think is true, at least at a gross scale, it may, it varies from place to place, then putting more honeybees on the landscape with the same number of flowers creates more competition for, for limited resources. And I think it's fair to say that there are probably some places and there are probably some situations like different times of the year where it's less of a concern, where there's probably like in the middle of summer in the Pacific Northwest, where we just have flowers a lot of places. <laughs> I don't want to say everywhere because that's not true, but like, it's probably less of a concern. There's probably a lot of resources out there that it, the system probably isn't pollen limited, mm -hmm. but you have to remember that honeybees, I just told you, they overwinter by eating honey. And so come springtime, there's 10,000 hungry mouths to feed that, you know, they've depleted the resources, maybe 
if we took their honey and give it, maybe they've been feeding on corn syrup for, for, a, for a while, right? So like they're starved. As soon as flowers start to boom, those animals are out there on those flowers right away, right? And that, so that's the times of year where things really get concerning. Like for our queen bumblebees that are out there trying to feed, if there's already a hive of honeybees out there taking those resources and you're just making it harder for that queen bumblebee or that solitary ground nesting bee that's trying to feed her kids all by herself. Like if she has to work harder or if they have to work harder to, to establish their nests, it's just, it's a, it's another added straw to the camel's back, right? Another thing mm -hmm. that we don't need to be doing to our native bees if we don't have to. And, and I think that's the real take home Rachel is like, nobody has to have honeybees in their backyard. There's, there's fine reasons to do it wax <laughs> as we've decided and honey are they're both really cool and and they're cool animals like there's no doubt that honeybees mm -hmm. are just beautiful they're fun to watch they're amazing to interact with i have friends that are beekeepers like it, it's a cool experience to be surrounded by them but it's not conservation like it's just not conservation and i think that's what people really need to take home it's like if you want to help getting a honeybee hive and putting in your backyard is is not helping it's potentially harming and there are other things that you can do to help and that, you know, plant flowers, create habitat, stop using pesticides, buy organic agriculturally produced foods. You know, there's, we can vote with our dollars. We can put habitat in the ground. We can do a lot of other things. That's, that's probably better than getting a honeybee hive. I have a follow-up question. You kind of answered our, our next few questions actually, which is great. Um, but aside from competition for floral resources, are there any other impacts that honeybees have on our native bees? And I think another follow-up question to that is for beekeepers who are listening, what can they do if they're already beekeeping, if they're doing it, you know, for honey or for whatever reason, other farmers, is there anything they can do to offset that impact? Um, to answer your first question about other impacts besides competition, the answer is yes. Um, the major other threat that we know that exists is disease transfer. Um, so there are a bunch of diseases in the bee world, just like there are in, in the human world. Um, and honeybees have been shown to be able to transmit diseases from themselves to our native bees. So they're introducing diseases to them, but they're also just amplifying them on the landscape. Right. If you imagine that there's a flower out there somewhere with a disease on it and a honeybee visits it and then it brings that disease back to the hive and it then gives that disease to 10,000 or 50,000 other bees that are flying over the landscape. And then all of a sudden you have all these vectors that are moving this disease and, and putting it on flowers instead of just one flower. Now it's on 50,000 flowers in the landscape. All of a sudden, the potential for a native bee to transmit or, or to get that disease is, is higher. Mm -hmm. and, and some of these, and so that's what we're seeing happening is both that honeybees are, are moving. And also, like, as we take a honeybee on a truck from California back to Vermont, right, we're moving diseases long distances and potentially taking different variants to different parts of the country and introducing potentially novel pathogens, you know, all over the country. Um, and I think that's the major concern is, is disease transfer and transmission. And it's a fairly 
unregulated industry. Like you can move honeybees across state line and they'll often look for macro diseases like mites and other things that you can see. But most of these diseases I'm talking about are like RNA viruses or, or small bacteria or small fungal um, you know, pathogens that aren't detectable by, by looking at a hive. They're just, they're just in there. Um, and, and so that's another major concern um, is that, you know, these honeybees are, are moving diseases around. And I, I think I, I don't, I don't want to overstate my knowledge. Um, and so for, forgive me. Um, but my understanding is also that I believe some commercial beekeepers because of the disease issue are becoming increasingly concerned about backyard beekeeping because a lot of backyard beekeepers don't do quite as good a job at managing these sort of diseases in the honeybee world. And so some of these backyard honeybees are actually more diseased in some ways than the commercial bees. And again, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I've heard and read anecdotal reports about this. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think even the honeybee world has some concerns about disease transfer in this regard. I'm sure it's on their radar and that they're thinking about it, but it's, it's definitely a concern when we talk about transmission to our native bees as well. And then you had another question. (laughs) (laughs) So many questions. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I can't remember it. What was it? Beekeepers. What can they do to offset that impact for native bees? Yeah. I mean, I think I was getting at it at the end there. I think people can really educate themselves and find the best way to keep the healthiest hive that they possibly can. Um, I don't, I, I'm not the right source for that. And I don't think Xerces in general is the right source for that. I think there are beekeeping associations, you know, all over the country that can help you do this really well. But I think if you're going to do it, you ought to take it really seriously and do the best possible job that you can to to keep your animals healthy and to make sure that you're therefore keeping the pollinator community healthy where you have your hive. Um, and then, you know, like I wouldn't move it around, you know, like <laughs> there's no reason to set it up to into the forest in the summer or anything like try to keep it in one spot would be another best practice as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then plant flowers. Like uh, I think it's somewhere between a half acre and a full acre of habitat is how much a honeybee needs or a honeybee colony needs to be successful. That's larger than any urban lot that I know of. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so, you know, people ought to be planting flowers uh, as many as they can. Like if you've got honeybees and green grass, you should probably convert that green grass to habitat and plant, you know, or at least have a lot of clover growing within that green grass. Um, And I think those are, you know, really the best things that, that, that you can do. Um, I guess I would also just encourage that people talk to their neighbors about these issues, right? I mean, it's, it's what, what one honeybee in, in one backyard is different than like 15 people living adjacent to each other that all have honeybee hives in their backyard, right? That all of a sudden increases the competitive impact of, of those species dramatically. And so trying to spread that out would be good. And, you know, just, I just think we need to be having these conversations as communities and really thinking about the best ways to move forward. Um, and it, it makes me think of not to overly promote Xerxes 
programs, but it makes me think of our our um, our B cities and our B campuses, how they're just great networks for policy development around this, about how can we really create a system that's supportive of those people that do want to be backyard beekeepers, which is, I think it's okay, as long as you're doing it for the right reason. Like, how do we create a system that works for them that also works for our native bees and our native pollinators? I think we can all be on board to try to work together to find the best ways to do this. And I think we just need to have those open conversations with each other and not be, you know, I don't think beekeepers need to be shamed because they're beekeepers. Like, it's fine Mm -hmm. to be a beekeeper. People have dogs, right? Dogs have negative environmental impacts. Cats, cats kill millions of birds a year, right? So like we can all coexist. There's re- there's good reasons to have dogs and cats and honeybees. And I think we just need to like have open conversations about it and find best practices together. Yeah. Well, um, this is, this has been great, Rich. And um, my next question was going to be, you know, if, if someone doesn't have a backyard hive, you know, don't want to be a beekeeper, what can they do to help bees? Um, and I know you've touched on to some of that already, but is there more or you know more detail you wanted to add to what you'd already said about you know someone wants to quote save the bees without introducing a non-native species? What can they do? I mean, habitat is the number one answer. Answer, yeah. Matthew. If, if you if you own land or you rent property that has land that has space that you can interact with create messy (laughs) messy flowery (laughs) landscapes as much as you possibly can is what i would say you know like grow a bunch of have fun growing a bunch of native plants and grow the weirdest ones you can and and just have fun with it and you know you can do that in your backyard and have your front yard look nice and tidy for for those neighbors that walk past or however you want to do it but yeah, just have fun creating habitat um, is, is like, like the best thing that you can probably do is just be messy and have fun with it um, and document who comes. Like it's a build it and they will come scenario, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the <laughs> coolest things about it. Like you've got a wildlife safari just waiting for you in your backyard um, and and create the template to watch and make that happen. I know I recognize that a lot of people don't have don't have the luxury of of managing habitat and can't grow a field of flowers. Um, Mm -hmm. And those people, I I guess I would encourage to to think about how they're spending every resource that they possibly send. You know, like, are you where are you buying honey? You know, like try to buy your honey from from a beekeeper, you know, go to a farmer's market to find your honey, you know, like have a relationship with the person you're getting honey with. Um, they'll feel better about it. You can feel better about it and have a conversation about what that's like and what that's like for them. Likewise with all of your food, like, you know, what kind of agricultural system are we as a society going to promote? And I know a lot of people are struggling right now to pay the bills. I know that grocery prices have gone up and I know it's not easy for for everybody. I know that people are struggling, but I think that we as a society need to decide where we want to spend our dollars. And I think spending dollars on sustainably produced food is one of the best investments that you can possibly make. It's more important than the next widget that's going to come out from Acme company. You know, like I think we need to, to really think about those resources and how we as a community want to spend them. And if you have the resources or, or want to think about spending them on sustainable agricultural practices, 
that's the best possible thing that we could all be doing is really investing heavily in a sustainable future to feed ourselves, in my opinion. Oh, no, no, that's great. Um, thank you, Rich. It's been a great conversation. Um, I really enjoyed tapping into your depth of knowledge about conservation, the insight you gave us into the complexity of this issue and also so many aspects of it. I mean, this was great. Um, for Can I just say one more thing, Matthew? I'm yeah, sorry, of course. No, 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 go for it. I, just that we've had kind of a broad conversation and most of it has been related to honeybees. Um, mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people also invest in mason bees as a thing. And like, mm-hmm. I guess I would just say as a general practice from my perspective, like mason bees are great too. They're super fun and you can have a ton of fun with them, but there's no reason to ever, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason to be buying any bee and moving it around, right? There's opportunities to create habitat, which would promote the opportunity for mason bees to nest in your yard, but -hmm. you don't need to buy mason bees to do that. You know, you put out the habitat again, let's create the habitat and and let the safari come to us rather than trying to create the safari by moving animals around. Um, And I just think since we're having a conversation that's kind of related, I think the issues around mason bees are probably less well-known, but potentially equally as problematic that it's worth at least just mentioning. So I appreciate the opportunity. You let me to, to step back on my soapbox for a second. No, 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 of course. I mean, that, that, that that's what this, this podcast is all about. It's giving people, uh, you know, that, that soapbox moment where they can share great knowledge, great ideas. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and I know for many of our listeners who might want to learn more, you know, we can always recommend people go to the Xerces.org website where there's, advice gardening advice plant lists more reading about honeybees etc etc i mean i know rich you mentioned um bee city bee campus and you were concerned that maybe it's self-promotion but we're all a shameless self-promotion here it's all right um and we we do have one more question for you and i'll hand it over to rachel it's her favorite question that she asks everybody it is my favorite question, but I also wanted to toot both of your horns because you both put out a honeybee publication that talks about why saving the bees, like getting a high won't save the bees. And I f- think it's a great publication. And if people have, you know, friends that they want to talk to this, have this conversation with, um, you know, go to our website and and look it up. And it's a great, a great resource with a lot of great information. Um, so yeah, my favorite question and Rich, I have to be honest, I ask this question because of you. <laughs> Because I asked you this a long time ago and I still remember your answer and it stuck with me. So I was like, I'm going to ask everyone this question. So I'll have to come up with a different question for you in March when you come back. But (laughs) if you could tell our audience your inspiring story about what made you want to study bees, when did you get hooked into studying bees? Gosh, I... (laughs) I hope I give the same answer. I was thinking That's the same. Really <laughs> embarrassing. No one else will know if it's. This feels it's like a lot different. of pressure. Yeah. Oh no! It was inspiring. Uh, I was really no, inspired. No, I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I, it's probably the same. It'll, I'll probably give you the same answer. Um, yeah. No. I um, when I, I I didn't like grow up being a kid that chased bugs around my backyard. It wasn't like my it wasn't my upbringing. Science was kind of something I discovered later in life. And, um, I, I really just wanted to make the world a better place. And I was trying to figure out how to do that. And my early degree was actually in political science. So I've thought a lot about 
influence um, and how do we talk to, to lawmakers and policymakers in ways that they'll listen. And economics was a, was a major player there. I recognize that it probably was. And so I became interested in, in bees because of, um, generally speaking, because of pollination services and that we could put an economic value on their presence in the world. And that was kind of my interest originally. Um, but I, I, um, I was super young and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I just kind of I walked into the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University and, and just said, "I want to volunteer. <laughs> I want someone to take me on, and and, and I want to help in, in whatever way I can." And um, Dr. Claire Kremen um, took me and and said, "Sure, you can help me." And I spent, you know, like a winter typing some old reference material into an Excel spreadsheet so she could do some analyses. And then she hired me on to, um, to be on her field crew, um, which was in at UC Davis um, in the Cape Bay Valley, looking at watermelon pollination. It was one of the early studies that um, sort of looked at the pollination services of native bees and, and tried to address that question. Like if we have enough habitat, can, can native bees actually provide pollination services instead of honeybees? Um, and my first, I think it was my first day out in the field. I was walking with Dr. Robin Thorpe, who God bless his soul. One of the, the most wonderful men I've ever had the opportunity to interact with. He passed away a couple of years ago, but was a, you know, 25 year mentor of mine. Um, he, we were just walking through this watermelon field, um, squash field. And he, uh, he said, come here, come here. And he like pulled me over and he bent over and he picked up this squash flower, which they're open very early in the morning and then they close and they're closed for the rest of the day. He picked this flower up and he, he just put it right in my face and he just opened it up. And about 15 squash bees, male squash bees in the genus Pepinapus just like came flying out of this flower, like right into my face. And I, it was like just one of the coolest experiences I have ever had. And I, yeah, I think it was literally that moment that I fell. I, I didn't just see the practical aspect of studying bees, but I fell in love with the animal. And um, and yeah, it's been a pretty great ride ever since then. Yeah, that was the story. <laughs> <laughs> and Maybe you can ask me again in March and people <laughs> will have forgotten and I'll tell you differently. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, Rich, I, I, I've worked with you for quite a few years now, but I didn't know that was your origin i knew you had a really close relationship with robin but didn't know that was your first meeting and i mean i know that research that was published from that study in the waterman and it was kind of foundational to so much that's come since and there you were out in the field yeah uh, yeah i collected a lot of that data it was yeah that's amazing seminal wow. study that came out at the yeah. time um kind of opened the door to a lot of what's happened and i i owe a lot of uh where I am to, to Robin and Claire, two just wonderful people and yeah. wonderful scientists and, and wonderful mentors. They were both great to me. I feel really lucky to have knocked on that door that day. <laughs> yeah, that, that is amazing. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rich, for your time today. I'm really looking forward to having you back again in March to talk about bumblebees. And we hope that our listeners enjoyed this podcast. Thank you again, Rich. Thanks for the opportunity. It was really yeah. fun. Thank you. 
Bug Banter is brought to you by the Xerces Society, a donor-supported nonprofit that is working to protect insects and other invertebrates, the life that sustains us. If you're already a donor, thank you so much. If you want to support our work, go to xerces.org slash donate. For information about this podcast and show notes, go to xerces.org slash bugbanter.